Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla, and I'm here with my friend Kristen. Hello! Uh, trying to be a good person can be overwhelming in our complex global marketplace. In this podcast, we try to make it a little bit easier by looking at the details behind consumer movements, product labels, and ethical lifestyles. Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption, and then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. This episode, we are looking at vegetarianism, which Kristen, I think, did most of the work on this one. Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of research on it. It was kind of interesting, though, uh, because I assumed the research would be easy because I am already vegetarian and I know most of this stuff. But there's actually a lot of facts that were sort of underlying the assumptions that I had. So there's a lot more there than I was expecting. And, you know, I thought that my challenge would be easy because I have been a vegetarian in the past and I don't eat a lot of meat already. But I had trouble. I'll tell you. Uh, when we get to the <laughs> challenge, we'll talk about it. But this was a more challenging episode than I think either of us expected. I think so. I mean, my challenge, I kind of... um I took an easy challenge this week, uh, but I did more research, so I feel like that's kind of fair. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, my challenge wasn't that hard either. I just had a hard week. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get into that. Uh, I think you have some pretty cool ways to start this off, so take it away, Kristen. I shall. So um, I suppose we should start by talking about what vegetarianism is. Um, and that is more of a complicated question than you might think, because there are a whole bunch of kinds of vegetarians. And uh, the definition like has not been consistent over time or over place. So I basically was Googling online just to make sure that I got all of the common types of vegetarian. And then I sort of lumped them into three categories. Um, the vegetarian inclined, the vegetarian, and then the vegan. So... I'll go into what each of those are. So vegetarian inclined are people that I don't think can actually call themselves vegetarian, but are aspirationally working towards vegetarianism. Um, so that includes people that define themselves as semi-vegetarian or flexitarian. Um, and that means that they sometimes eat meat, but they're trying not to eat meat. So that's one category. Guilty. I feel called out right now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's fine. That's a great thing to do. But it probably doesn't mean you can call yourself vegetarian. And I'm always like, when I'm at an event and somebody calls himself vegetarian and then grabs some chicken and they say, oh, I sometimes eat meat, <laughs> I just kind of give them a little side eye. <laughs> it's fine if you want to be flexitarian, but call yourself flexitarian if that's what you are. Okay, yeah, I feel better then because I definitely don't <laughs> brag about being a vegetarian when I am definitely yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the next category within the vegetarian inclined is... Uh, Polotarian, which are people that eat poultry and fowl. Again, not really considered vegetarian, but sometimes people use that term to describe themselves, and it means they don't eat red meat, so that is that is a dietary restriction that does not include certain meats. To be fair, actually, I feel less bad eating turkey than I do eating other animals because turkeys are dicks. <laughs> I like that. When we talk about the ethics of animal welfare, we I, I don't think I had certain animals are dicks as a justification, <laughs> but I feel like that could be fair. Uh, so the other one in that category is pescatarian. I feel like this is pretty common. It's people that just eat fish. When I was 
sort of stepping stoning towards being vegetarian, I was a pescatarian for a while. So definitely, I don't think you can call yourself a vegetarian if you're in any of those categories, but I think it can be a good way to be. And uh, being flexitarian or polotarian, I've never met anyone that is that, um, or pescatarian. (laughs) If that's you, that's great. Uh, Good job, you. So the next category is people that are vegetarian. um, And There are basically three different categories depending on whether you eat dairy, eggs, or dairy and eggs. So the most common is ovo-lactarian or lacto-ovo-vegetarian. So those are people that eat cheese and eggs. The next is lactarian, so people that eat dairy but don't eat eggs. And then there are also ovo-vegetarians who eat eggs but not dairy. Those are all varieties within sort of the main category of vegetarianism. And then you have vegans. Uh, So those are people that don't eat any animal products at all. We're going to do a whole episode on them, but I just wanted to highlight two different categories of vegan um, because I had never heard of one of them before. So the first one is just vegans uh, who don't eat any animal products. Um, And then there are vegans, so vegans that eat bee products. Oh my God, I'm already calling it. (laughs) That is what I'm going to be if I ever turn into a vegan. (laughs) You're going to be a vegan? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Boo, Kristen, I'm leaving. This right. is well. That's the end of the episode. All right, uh, thank yeah, you. This was this uh, was a nice podcast yeah, idea. Yeah, now we're done. <laughs> you can get us on Twitter at uh, no. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah. Don't at me. Never at me. <laughs> vegans. Okay. Uh, the other thing about vegans, vegans, and I know that we're gonna go into it when we do our a whole episode on like uh, veganism, but. There's like some people who are so hardcore vegan that if you, you might eat um, like a plant based. Uh, diet, but you can't technically call yourself a vegan if maybe you own a pair of leather shoes or whatever. Veganism is like more of a lifestyle um, than a dietary choice. I found that they often prefer that description anyway. I don't know. Yeah. I'm like working aspirationally towards veganism, um, but it is much more intense and difficult. Uh, So definitely not only that, but also I mean, we'll get into my challenge um, this week a little later, but looking at the alcohol that you drink, things that you might not necessarily assume that there is an animal product of some kind, but there might be. So oftentimes you'll have vegetarians that are very strict on things like that, so they won't eat candy that has gelatin in it. I would put myself in that category. But people can often be surprised by what is... um, People may not look that much in depth into what might have animal products in it. And so oftentimes in the the vegetarian category, we're not as careful about that, whereas vegans are very careful about it as a general rule. Yeah, like I had a friend who recently became, I think he was becoming a vegan and he was like, Coca-Cola is vegan, right? And I was like, yeah, it's just sugar. And then we looked it up and actually, no, there's like a fish oil in the coloring or something. I can't remember exactly. I probably shouldn't say, but it's not vegan basically. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell from the label. You just have to do some like deep dive Googling. And then it's like, oh, this uh, drink that's literally just sugar still somehow (laughs) isn't vegan. Still somehow has fish or something in it. Yeah. And, and even like, well, actually, let's let's not talk about this. We'll do the veganism episode. I don't want to spoil all of our material for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about the history of vegetarianism, because I think that's actually pretty interesting. So humans essentially have been vegetarian since before recorded history started. 
And anthropologists actually believe that a lot of early humans would have eaten a predominantly plant-based diet um, just because uh, that was the easiest thing to be able to cultivate. Plants don't run away. So most of the calories that humans <laughs> got in sort of early human history would have been from plants anyway. One of the first societies that was noted as being sort of explicitly mostly vegetarian for sort of cultural or ethical reasons is actually the ancient Egyptians. So they refrained from eating meat except during festivals and special occasions, um, and that was primarily for religious reasons. So they did eat meat on occasion, but mostly got their their calories most of the time from, from plants. Um, and then there were the Pythagoreans. Have you heard of Pythagoras? <laughs> I've heard of Pythagoras. Please don't ask yeah, me. Yeah, what do, do you the, know about him? <laughs> I, I, something about triangles. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the right angle triangle guy, right? <laughs> but but he was also like he had this weird cult around him. Actually, uh, there was this whole he had this whole sort of ethical system that was set up, and there were a group of people that followed his practices called Pythagoreans, and they were vegetarian for religious and ethical reasons. So Pythagoras considered it wrong to treat any animal differently than someone anyone would treat a human, um, because he believed that all living things uh, had a soul, basically. So it's sort of a belief that we have throughout a lot of history, but he was sort of one of the earliest or the earliest known proponent of that idea. A sort of fun fact around that is that he also didn't eat beans, uh, because he believed that's what humans were made out of, <laughs> so... They weren't all good ideas. <laughs> I love, I love old mathematicians and their ideas. Like some, especially the ones that got like some things dead on, and then some yeah. things like who was that guy who thought that um, the world lit up because uh, light came out of our eyes? I can't that, that was Aristotle. That. Yeah, fucking yeah. wild. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it would have been awesome to be a thinker in ancient Greece, um, although we wouldn't have had rights, but uh, to be a male sort of privileged thinker in ancient Greece, because you could have just made up like whatever shit you wanted and probably some patron would fund you to, to think more about it. Yeah, and if, you know, if they it, like, you're like, oh, that kind of makes sense, right? Like everywhere I look, I can see stuff. So <laughs> it's got to be laser beams shooting out of my eyes. It's it's the uh, the natural explanation. <laughs> I think Aristotle also invented this, this, like the snorkel. I know that's not relevant to this episode, but it's a fun fact. <laughs> so, um, for for many for many years, at least in Western history, a vegetarian diet was actually known as a Pythagorean diet. So, really, until modern vegetarian comes around, uh, there's still that legacy of Pythagoras and his theories about the soul. So, uh, during the Renaissance, actually being a Pythagorean was considered to be heresy. Um, and during that same time, you sort of contradictorily saw various figures adopting a Pythagorean diet and speaking out against animal cruelty. One figure that I would not have expected to have been in this category, but is, is Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, he was a vegetarian. I think I knew that, actually. Yeah, that guy's totally awesome. Yeah, I, I didn't. I thought it was so interesting. Um, so he he followed a Pythagorean diet, and he was actually known to just go around in the marketplace and just free any caged birds that he saw, which I like. Oh my god, I love it. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> I think it's like it's so um it's so in contrast with what my mental image of Leonardo da Vinci is. You know, he's like this 
this sort of polished thinker that invents things, but he's just also like running around causing havoc with birds at the marketplace. He's just this this wholesome <laughs> prankster as well. <laughs> yeah. So um, even though in the Renaissance there was like still really really big pushback against uh, a Pythagorean diet. Moral arguments against meat consumption started to gain speed during the Renaissance, um, although it was still very much a fringe theory. So then you get to the early vegetarian movement. Uh, the term vegetarian was first listed in the dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary anyway, in 1839. So that's about the time when early vegetarianism starts to, to take off. And the first vegetarian society formed in England in 1847. Um, and then shortly after that, the American Vegetarian Society formed in New York um, in 1850. So you're starting to see groups, um, affinity groups around vegetarianism take off, and the term vegetarian is becoming more popular. So some notable early vegetarians include um, Susan B. Anthony, the suffragette, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, um, who followed a practice of non-injury, George Bernard Shaw, and Leo Tolstoy, who he had this really weird egg-based vegetarian diet. Um, if you're interested, just Google some of his recipes. They sound really disgusting. <laughs> so I totally believe it. I, to I, I I've just finished reading a couple of his books, and uh, I, I first of all, what an author! But also, uh, I totally believe that he would have a weird diet. He was also an asshole to his wife, but <laughs> yeah, I could see that too. <laughs> Which is a shame. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. No, though, not at all. Like, saying. but it's just, yeah, that's it. That's a shame. That makes me sad. I'm glad you told me that, so I don't go around being like, "Oh, Leo Tolstoy's amazing," and then everyone else is like, "Oh, he was a wife beater or whatever," and I'm like, "Well, I don't think he was actually a wife beater. He was just like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> just like emotionally manipulative." <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was. Um, I could see that. He insisted on her like reading his diary, and <laughs> he would include details about his affairs in it. Like, whoa. Yeah, he was a weird guy, but not necessarily a monster. Oh, you know? just, it's, why, why are the good authors always so strange? Creativity, Kyla, that's why. Um, so anyway, you start to see around sort of like the mid to late 1800s, vegetarianism takes off. And then in the early 20th century, you really start to see it take off even more. Um, and at that time, vegetarianism was really associated with um, temperance and abstinence. So... I don't know if you've heard about the, like, John Kellogg, the, the cornflakes guy. Yeah, he was a really big, uh, like, non-masturbation guy um, and also a vegetarian. And uh, that is not as coincidental as it might seem that a lot for in a lot of cases, the early vegetarians also sort of practiced. They didn't drink. Um, abstinence was a big thing. It was it was sort of a it was about like morally sort of removing yourself from pleasure. Um, that was sort of part of it, at least for some people. For others, it was primarily an animal welfare thing. There's also an uncomfortable association between those early vegetarians and the eugenics movement. Certainly not everybody, but a fair number of early vegetarians were eugenicists, which I find fascinating because for, for me, the respect of human life and animal life go hand in hand. So I, I don't understand how that 
came to be a set of ideas that were together. But anyway. I mean, to be fair to them, eugenics was really popular just in that, <laughs> like, in that, in that, like, time period that they were living in. You know what I mean? Like, it was just a really big deal back then. And it's one of those things that maybe it was a product of their social spheres as well as, you know, maybe it, they found a way for it to go hand in hand with vegetarianism, I guess. But also, it's just... Nice to know what the zeitgeist was like at the time. <laughs> like, eugenics was a pretty popular yeah, idea. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so, glad glad that's mostly over. Uh, <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stick to history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too topical. All right. Uh, so, anyway, um, vegetarianism sort of went mainstream, or more mainstream anyway, in the 70s. So there are two books that are really strongly associated with the rise of vegetarianism. One is a book called Diet for a Small Planet um, by Francis Moore Lapp. And the other one is Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. And they were both published in the 70s. And so you'll see, um, we're going to talk about animal welfare and environment as kind of the two ethical issues around being vegetarian. And that's really something that from the 70s, um, and even really earlier, but certainly from the 70s, those are sort of the two ethical frames that, that take off for, as the reason that people become vegetarian. So then you see sort of like today's culture, uh, plant-based diets or vegetarianism are increasingly popular. So as of 2018, about 10% of the Canadian population is vegetarian or vegan. And uh, that's according to research done by this guy who calls himself the food professor. His name's Sylvain Charlebois. Uh, he's really cool. You should follow him on Twitter. He's done some research and it's, it tends to be younger Canadians that are vegetarian or vegan. And it, it is sort of about 10% of the population. Although it can be, um, in some demographics, I think the under, I think under 35 range, I might have the wrong age range, but for sort of young people in Vancouver, it's about a quarter of the population. So uh, depending on where you are, vegetarianism can be much more than 10% or it can be less. That's cool. I like that it's younger people too. It gives me hope for the future, except that it's already too late. Oh no. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Sad. Oh, Although they boy. don't measure flexitarianism and I feel like that's been the, the big rise. So, uh, But the 10% the of the population figure for Canada actually isn't unique to Canada. I found also a figure for Americans. So about 8% of Americans are vegetarian or vegan. Um, and that number has actually been relatively flat since the late 1990s, which I found really interesting. There hasn't been a lot of movement, whereas if I'm recalling the Canadian study correctly, it's been a while since I read since I read the figures, but there has been an increase here. So that's I thought that was kind of interesting. Flexitarianism isn't something they commonly include in polls. They don't ask, are you flexitarian? Partially because it's a pretty new term, but it's gaining popularity as well. So between 2014 and 2018, sales of meat substitutes doubled in the United States. So it went from a market of 702 million to uh, to 1.44 billion. So You can thank me for some of that. I love my veggie sausages. <laughs> Beyond Burger, it's smashing the marketplace. Uh, <laughs> okay, so that that's it for the history of vegetarianism. Do we want to do the challenge now or do we want to go to ethics? <sighs> the ethics are going to be so sad. Let's just get into it. Let's do the ethics and then we'll end on our challenges, which are going to be a bit of a high note. Oh, gosh, this is going to be so dark. Everybody buckle in. Yeah, strap in, folks. As I mentioned before, there are sort of two poles of the vegetarian movement. Um, one is animal welfare concerns, and the other is environmental concerns. 
We're going to talk about both of those. The animal welfare piece, uh, we're going to try to make it funny, but it is going to be a lot more depressing than the environmental one. So just please, you know, hug a pillow or something. <laughs> I don't know. So there are sort of two questions when it comes to animal welfare and vegetarianism, if you're looking at it from an ethical perspective. The first question is, in general, is it wrong to raise and kill animals for human consumption, even if it's done humanely? And that's oftentimes where people are having the debate, um, because it's a, it's a sort of more principled space for the argument. But a second question, and one that I think is actually much more relevant uh, to making ethical consumption decisions, is, is it wrong to raise or kill animals for human consumption in the way that we're doing it via industrial agriculture? Ooh, spoiler alert, yes. <laughs> yeah, so in the way that we mostly have to buy our meat and eggs and dairy products. Vegans then would extend the question, and we'll talk about this more in that episode. They'll ask, can you ever sort of, uh, whether it can ever be right to use animals as sort of a human ends. So that would include um, extracting milk, um, taking honey from bees, even if they don't end up dying in the process, which oftentimes they do. So you're still, if you're eating an egg, you're probably complicit in the death of at least one animal, so... Oh, and can we talk about cheese rennet as well? Or rennet, or however you pronounce it? We, we can. <laughs> but, <laughs> but not right now. <laughs> it's so depressing. Everything has secret meat in it. So, the debate on animal welfare has oftentimes been put into a frame of sort of animal rights or animal suffering. So... The sort of more extreme version of the argument um, is that animals or non-human people have rights. And the argument for animal rights typically relies on taking aim at the difference between animals and humans and saying, well, humans have rights, animals are like humans in this way, therefore animals should have rights. So some of the characteristics that um, non-human person rights activists will bring up are that they have similar levels of biological complexity. They're conscious and aware that they exist. They know what's happening to them. They like some things and don't so much like other things. I think anybody that has a pet can recognize that, you know. They um, make conscious choices. They live in a way that tries to give themselves the best quality of life. They even, to a certain extent, plan their lives, and the quality and length of life matters to them. So those are sort of the things that animal rights activists and advocates will bring up when they're trying to make the claim that animals are like humans. For people that argue that animals shouldn't have rights, uh, they'll often focus on the differences between animals and humans to make the claim that humans have something special that is why they have rights. They'll often claim that animals don't think, that they're not really conscious, there's also a couple of arguments that have really sort of Christian strands, strands to them, but have been important historically, um, and for some people today. Um, so the idea that animals were put on the earth to serve humans, um, it's sort of something that people arguing from a Christian tradition often did argue. I think that would probably have less suasion in today's society, maybe, um, because at, like environmental stewardship is a thing that we're recognizing as important, and we can really fuck up the planet, so why not extend that to animals? Another argument that animals don't have souls, which again is sort of an inherently, you have to believe that a soul exists in order for that argument to matter to you. Um, but if you do, um, maybe you don't think animals have souls and therefore we don't need to protect them. 
that animals don't behave morally. So that's this is the idea that rights only have meaning in a moral community. So I can't, you know, I can't agree on what what is the way I should behave with a tiger because a tiger is not going to be able to understand that. So we don't exist in the same moral community is one of the arguments that's made as well that they lack the capacity for free moral judgment. All of these conditions um, on both the for and against side are constantly under debate um, by various people. Uh, There are also like various studies that take aim at particular elements of this, um, although that's not the scientist's intention. They sort of come in neutrally trying to find out, can we teach this animal to push a ball through a hole, even though we think they're not a very complicated animal, you know, things like that. Uh, so it's it's like a really moving area, um, and we're it's really hard to tell what's inside the head of another creature. So I think this is something that's going to be under debate for many years to come. But I feel like every time I turn around, there's some new uh, article about how, oh, we've just figured out that actually octopuses are as smart as we are, or... Uh, it turns out they're probably smarter to be honest (laughs) (laughs) or it turns out that oh pigs have the same emotional range as human beings or oh you thought bees weren't conscious just kidding like every time i go on twitter it's some article from a new scientist study just being like yeah um all of these creatures are smarter than we thought and we already thought they were pretty smart yes um and and emotional like um, elephants mourn their dead in a way that's very similar to the way humans do. Even cows will will mourn their dead. Like if they take someone away that they that this cow is like best friends with, then they'll at least that's what I've heard. Uh, but they'll be really upset about it and go into depression. Yeah. So even though all of this is a matter of dispute, um, I I don't know. I tend to be of the view that a, a lot of these things animals at least share in similar in common a lot of these characteristics, but that's just my personal view and people are, it's, it's not decided by any means. No, but I'm, I'm kind of with you in that enough evidence is out there that even if just some of it is true, it's enough to be enough. So, um, the non-human person's rights movement has oftentimes focused on, um, hire animals like primates when they're trying to make the case that animals should have rights. It's just, um, I think, a strategic calculation mostly that it's easier to convince people that an animal that we know is similar to us because they're linked to us um, from an evolutionary perspective. It's easier to convince people that they are similar to us and should have rights. Um, And there is one uh, fairly significant success that, that was achieved in 2016 A court in Argentina ordered that a chimpanzee named Cecilia had to be released from a zoo where she had been in a zoo with no other chimpanzee companions. And the judge basically ruled that there was an animal welfare interest um, and that Cecilia's confinement was hurting her health and therefore she needed to be released. Oh my god, Kristen. You were like, bring the jokes. You have to liven up this episode, make everyone laugh. And here's Cecilia, the lonely chimpanzee, getting like... She got free, though. I know, She's but... She's with her friends now. I know, that's still... Uh... Yeah, it's sad. Oh boy, I guess... We, we should do an episode on zoos, because that's a whole Oh god. I, you know what? I think that's in the list. <laughs> We've got episodes for years, guys. Nobody even worry. Everything is broken. (laughs) (laughs) Everything sucks. So um, the animal rights argument, I mentioned that's sort of the strongest way that you can frame an animal welfare argument. 
Another way to go about it is to focus on interests of an animal. So Peter Singer is kind of the most well-known person that advocates for this perspective. Um, and basically, he rejects a rights-based frame to protecting animals, but instead says that you should use suffering as the metric. And his um, his sort of justification is rooted in utilitarianism. So essentially, he says that speciesism is wrong, that we shouldn't discriminate on grounds that a being belongs to a species. So instead, we should take into account whether we are causing harm to another being irrespective of what species they belong to. Once he's taken that frame, the argument that Singer makes is basically that the, the key thing we should be concerned about is capacity to feel pain. So Singer is kind of interesting because for this reason, he says that it's okay to eat bivalves, so oysters, mussels, and clams, because scientific consensus so far is that they probably don't feel pain because pain is something that it only evolutionarily makes sense to develop if you can move and bivalves can't move, right? Like we feel pain as a way to, to signal for ourselves that we need to get away from something. But if you can't move, there's really no reason for a pain sensor to be relevant. So probably didn't develop for bivalves. No, I wanted to say, um, just for anybody who's not sure about uh, what utilitarianism is, uh, it's just the basically the ethical belief that uh, the most ethical choice is the one that will produce the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, and it's a really interesting uh, philosophy. And if anybody wanted to look into it further, I definitely recommend it. There's some pretty cool like videos explaining it and stuff online. It's a good one. Yeah. And even if you don't like utilitarianism, you can still have that sort of non-rights-based justification for animal welfare. You would just then put it in the terms of animals not necessarily having rights, but having interests that ought not to be violated which is the same approach that we take to children in certain circumstances, right? We don't give them things like political rights, but they have interests that we protect in society. Some of those might include the interest of living in decent conditions, making free choices, being free from fear or pain, living healthy lives, and enjoying the normal social family or community life of a species. Um, so you can justify it on those grounds as well. So that's sort of the ideal theory of um, should we, should we, be able to raise and kill animals for our own consumption. But the reality is that we live in far from an ideal world and the practice of raising animals is what I think I would, to be really kind to factory farming, call a <laughs> hellscape. It's yeah. <laughs> really terrible. Yeah. <laughs> So the average size of farms is increasing all over America, and I wasn't specifically able to find a stat, but I would assume all over the world. And uh, factory farms are operations that have basically a lot of animals in one place. Uh, there's a definition that I found that said a factory farm counted as someplace with 500 beef or dairy cattle, 1,000 hogs. 100,000 egg-laying chickens, and 500,000 broiler Whoa. chickens. I'm trying to think in population terms. It's more than the population of the town we grew up in is, like, these chickens on this one farm. Yeah. Edmonton has, like, 800,000, 900,000 people, so... Yikes. Yeah, so that's two two broiler chicken farms. <laughs> so these are huge farms, truthfully. And if you're thinking, oh, well, factory farms, that's just the extreme. No, sorry. 
but the vast majority of meat is factory farmed. Again, I found a figure for America, but there's no reason to assume that it's different in Canada or Europe. 99.9% of chickens are factory farmed. 97% of laying hens, so all those ovo-lacto-vegetarians, we are not off the hook. 99% uh, of turkeys, 95% of pigs, and 78% of cattle. So most of the time, if you're eating meat, uh, unless you're specifically looking for... Wild game. Yeah, or like humane, or if you're like somebody that goes out and shoots your own deer or something, uh, you're probably eating factory farmed meat. So this is relevant to you. Oh my god, I feel so sad right now. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to like spend too much time on factory farms. I think everybody has heard something about them and knows that it's intuitively awful. But essentially, there are farms in which everything is organized to maximize production. And so the choices that are made are not in the condition, in support of good conditions for animals. It's in support of how do you get this animal to the weight it needs to be to go to slaughter uh, as quickly as possible, and how can we do that for as many animals as possible, as cheaply as possible? I don't think we'll talk about this that much in the episode, but it's also shitty on, on labor rights for a lot of similar reasons. Um, chicken workers are just in really terrible situations. But let's talk a little bit about animals in factory farms. So the first thing to, to think about is that they have very little space most of the time. Uh, so a few examples that you might have heard of already. Um, so when breeding sows are pregnant, they're put in something called gestation crates. Um, if you Google this, it's really horrific. They are basically completely immobilized. They can't turn or anything. Uh, most chickens are kept in something called battery cages, which hold five to ten birds, and each bird might have the equivalent amount of floor space to a sheet of letter-sized paper. So animals crowded together, oftentimes they're put in situations where they can't fully be mobile, and that's that's where they live for their whole lives. I think as most people can understand if you've been on a subway car, um, overcrowding and boredom creates stress and that can cause aggression. So in order to deal with that, rather than giving animals more space, factory farms actually like remove body parts. So for chickens, turkeys, and ducks, they often have their beaks removed. Yeah, so they can't peck each other. And uh, most pigs actually have their tails cut off to prevent them from biting each other's tails. I didn't know the tail thing. So I knew the beak thing, but this t the tail thing, that's, uh, that's a new fun fact. I'll use that at dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this podcast fun? Uh, 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 <laughs> we talked about Pythagoras for a while. I am having an existential crisis over here. <laughs> this is really going to speed up my transition to, veg to veganism, I think. I know. I'm really glad that uh, my challenge involved not eating meat for the last two weeks because... <laughs> I'm feeling a lot better about my diet. <laughs> if I'd gone into this after eating a hamburger, I think I'd be sick. Yeah, I mean, the other solution, though, is like, if you're in theory okay with eating meat as long as it's humanely produced is, I mean, there are two avenues. One, you can only eat humanely produced meat. And two, you could lobby government to put in place better regulations so farms can't do shit like this because it should be illegal. I know that's an opinion and not fact-based, but... This is a podcast, and I am going to state that opinion. <laughs> this isn't your thesis, Kristen. You can say anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
citation, Pew 2019. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even free-ranged eggs that you get, like, off the Whole Foods shelf or whatever, they're not really in much better conditions than the chickens that are stuffed five to a cage, like you were talking about. No, it's really like, oh, they can have, like, a couple feet. It's not great. Um, there are some farms that are really good about it, though, so maybe we should devote an entire episode to this question. Uh, anyway, um, so overcrowding, in addition to, like, pissing people off um, and animals off, um, it also means that animals get sick a lot because just shoving a bunch of animals together, the transmission of disease increases Ooh, a lot. Ooh, are we going to talk about antibiotics now? Yeah, do you want to talk about antibiotics? I just had a quick note that, like, that's why there's so many antibiotics, but if you want to... Expand. No, on no. I was <laughs> no. I just, I've just, I've been reading it. Like we have, we have an antibiotic crisis on our hands, basically. And we'll link to some articles on this because it's really interesting. But a lot of it is because of the factory farming industry. And I had no idea until I was reading about it recently. And it was like, oh my god! Like these, like these farms aren't already nightmarish <laughs> enough. Yeah, they're also going to lead to antibiotic resistance and superbugs that kill us all. So hooray! God, this episode's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is almost as good as our cruelty-free episode. <laughs> yeah. So, um, egg-laying chickens are put through something. I just, like, found some other things that I thought were fucked, so I'm just going to say them. Uh, egg-laying chickens are put through something called force molting, where they're denied food for up to two weeks in order to shock their bodies into another egg-laying cycle. That's fucked. Um, and calves are... Basically, they go into feedlots and they're fattened for slaughter on like a really unnatural diet so that they can reach market weight. And once they reach that weight, they're they're killed. So can you imagine that being your entire life? Like you're ripped from your mother and then you're shoved in this like shitty feedlot, fed way more than you need or want, not really allowed to move. Um, and then you basically like go in a truck where you're you're killed. When do you have a note on the rape machines for cows as well? Like... No. Mm, yeah, I thought that might be too dark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. We'll just uh, gloss over that then. Uh, yeah. Uh, Honestly, guys, yep. however dark yep. you think this episode is, we could go a lot darker. <laughs> and we're already being really opinionated and, and heavily biased with everything we're saying. And it's not even the worst stuff. Well, I really think like if you talk to most people about factory farms, even people that would never consider a vegetarian diet and you just explain factory farms, people are like, yeah, that's kind of messed up, you know? Uh, it's just it's just a, a matter of, like, it's a complicated reality that gets us there. So people would rather not focus on it, I think. And that's, that's a natural thing. You don't really have much control about, uh, over factory farms. But I think one way you can take control over these kinds of issues is to make make choices that push the market in a direction. So if that for you means eating humane certified meat, that might be a way to go. Um, or taking a plant-based diet. Or it's, I mean, it's it's tricky. It depends on, it depends on who you are. You know, if you're a busy single mom working two jobs, then obviously it's a lot harder for you to go to the local farmer's market and buy mm -hmm. wild game from, you know, your local farmer. And so it's just so much more convenient to to go into the shop and just buy something off the shelf. And it's this cognitive dissonance where you're like, I know this is wrong, but here are my justifications. And your justifications are good, you know? So it's like, how do you, mm -hmm. how do you find a balance? Totally. I think that's real and it's fair, right? Like, it's a lot easier for 
you or I to be vegetarian or to eat humane source meat in the sort of neighborhoods and cities where we live and being sort of more sort of privileged elements of society than it is for other people. And that's fair. Yeah, single, able-bodied, young people who are working and can sometimes, you know, afford to go buy maybe the more ethical items. Although a vegetarian diet is a lot cheaper than buying wild game. It is. Genuinely, if just try vegetarianism, it's not it's not that hard, honestly. Um, <laughs> or, or don't, and that's fine. Uh, so should we talk a little bit about environment? Yeah, that, that should be a lot more fun. <laughs> and actually, it's not all that depressing, because I think it leads to a fairly straightforward answer, which is that just eating less meat gives you huge environmental gains. So if you weren't persuaded by the animal rights arguments, or you found that overwhelming, the good news is that just reducing your meat consumption can give you a bunch of sort of environmental points. So that's a way to feel good. That's how I'll positively frame the environment issue. Greetings from the future. This is Ed and Kyla here popping in to say that this episode ran a little long, so we are going to cut it in half right here. If you are dying to know what Kristen has to say about the environmental impact of vegetarianism, I know I am, you can catch it on Thursday when we release the second half of this episode. We're still a new podcast, and we would love to get some feedback about how you would like episodes formatted. So if we end up going really long, would you prefer to have a long episode? Or do you prefer us to cut it in half like this and leave you wanting more? You can let us know at Pullback Podcast on Twitter, or you can send an email to pullbackpod at gmail.com. This was an episode we recorded a little bit earlier than some of the more recent ones, so we didn't do a shout-out of the week or a call to action, so I'm going to take an opportunity now to add one for these two just right here in the middle. My shout-out of the week is to Kristen, who always does such amazing research, and I really appreciate all the work she does on this, and I just wanted to give her a big old shout-out. Good work, Kristen. You're a great partner. Love ya. And our call to action this week, you know, I'm just going to make it an easy one. I'm just going to ask that everyone be a little bit more mindful. When you reach for food, just think about where it comes from. If it means that you still reach for that food, then that's okay. Just as long as you're trying, you know, just try to just try to think about it more. That's what I've been trying to do anyways. As always, we really appreciate our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll see you soon on our second parter of this vegetarianism episode. No, we can't edit audio. If I've learned anything from Behind the Bastards. <laughs> no, you, you got to cut it. <laughs> I don't know how. Sorry. I don't want to sound dumb. It is physically impossible um, to... Uh, I don't know how. You know how. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll see what kind of magic I can work.